Our psalm of the day is Psalm 63. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouth of liars will be stopped. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. And in 1 Corinthians 13, we are reading verses 1 through 13. And I will show you still a more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I am deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I grew up, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks as we come to this awesome declaration of the love that is manifested in the world through the Christian community. And Lord, we're grateful that you have revealed this love to us in Jesus Christ and that you empower and enable that love in the world today. We ask that you would give us help and that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. In his novel, The Painted Veil, Somerset Maugham tells the story of a young couple living in China in the 1920s. The husband is a doctor who is there to help, and the young wife is a woman named Kitty. 
She is a superficial woman, and she is searching for social significance and acceptance. She was in love with herself, not with her husband, and she failed to serve her husband well. She has a sexual affair with another man. This drives the husband to the end of himself, and there is an epidemic that takes place in the book in another part of inland China, and so the husband goes to serve the sick and the dying in that part of the nation. The young doctor sets off, and sometime later, Kitty decides to follow him in her own misery. The sight of death shocked her, and it unsettled her. She begins to ask herself questions, and it's at that point in the book when she meets several Catholic nuns who were serving the sick and the dying and the young. And in the middle of all of the carnage, she saw this lavish, sacrificial love being unfolded and taking place in front of her, and it was contrasted with her selfish and superficial life. Mom writes this about Kitty. He says, there was a barrier between her and them, referring to the nuns. They spoke a different language, not only of the tongue, but of the heart. And as Kitty left the convent and the door closed, she notes that she felt shut out. But she was not simply feeling shut out from the convent, but she felt shut out from something else. And as she walked home that afternoon, she mutters this, I am completely worthless. And it's this interaction that's so fascinating because the world in all of its superficiality, when it meets the lavish and sacrificial love of God, as embodied there by the Catholic nuns in this novel, that there's a unique power to it. It's no surprise that mom then records that Kitty converts, that she becomes a Christian drawn into this great love that she knew ultimately came from God. It's no surprise that her life changes dramatically and takes a different course because it was this manifestation of love in front of her. And this is why Paul, as he writes to the Corinthians and all of their troubles and all of their struggles as a community about a more excellent way, because this is to be the way and the life of the Christian community. It is the way of love. This is to be our witness to the world. And that's why in verses 1 through 3 that we see that all of our activities and all of our actions are to be governed by love. Follow with Paul's argument here. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing." And the Corinthians were a congregation caught up in the spiritual manifestation of gifts. And they were manifesting these gifts, but they were not doing so in a loving way. And so gifts like tongues and prophetic powers and theological knowledge and even the faith to move mountains. Paul says if you do these things and love doesn't temper them and govern them, then they're futile. They're empty. They mean nothing. And then he goes on to say that you can have great displays of sacrificial service. You can give over all your financial wealth. You can give your body to be martyred, in fact. But if you have not love, it gains you nothing. 
that love for the Apostle Paul was what governed everything inside the Christian life, that it was not one thing on the list for us to do, but rather that the command of love and giving ourselves to our neighbor and considering the good of our neighbor is actually the entire list of the Christian life, that it's woven through everything, that every command, that every duty, every decision, every action that we undertake as a community is to have love woven into it. Paul explains the uselessness and emptiness of it in very graphic language. We're familiar with the words noisy gong and clanging cymbal, but they're pretty interesting because they're located in the Corinthian context that the noisy gong was a a bronze basin that was used in the theater to project the actor's voice. It was something of an ancient microphone. And Paul says that is all it is. If you have gifts of tongues and you can speak in tongues of angels, but you cannot love, then you're just simply a high-pitched, empty voice. That's all you are. Then he says, or you're a clanging cymbal. And Corinth was known for its ecstatic worship inside of its pagan temples and the cult of Cybele. This was particularly known that the clanging cymbal was used to excite the congregation into a fervor. And he was saying... Your life is just like the useless pagan worship if you don't have love. He moves on to say that it's just nothing, that you gain nothing, that it's empty. And friends, this is what we have to reckon with, that we can have all manner of gifts, we can have, make all manners of sacrificial actions, but unless love is at the fabric of who we are as a Christian community, it means nothing to God. And this is what Paul is pressing the Corinthian congregation into. Because in all of their gifts and all of their great abilities and all of the wondrous things that had gone on and all the conflicts that we've seen, Paul is saying that these are being driven by a lack of love. So one of the most important questions for us to answer at this point is what does Paul mean when he says that we are to love? How does he define that? Obviously, this leads us into a problem in our own cultural context because we tend to define love in emotional and sentimental ways. It is something we feel. It's an experience we have. But as you follow Paul's argument in verses 4 through 7, we see that love, as defined by the gospel, rejects self-interest and seeks the good of other people. That this is how he understands what love is, and he gives his very famous litany of love. Inside of that litany, what you find are two positive expressions, and then you're going to find seven negative expressions. Paul gives us commands, things that we're to do, and then he commands us to stop doing certain things that we are to advance and we are to retreat, that we are to do and we are to desist, that we are to commence certain things and we're to cease others. That Paul sees in the Corinthian community that they needed to take up certain virtues of love and they needed to drop certain vices of selfishness. And so it's helpful for us to walk through each of these in some detail to follow how love is to work itself out inside the body of Christ. If you follow with me in 13.4, Paul begins with the positive statements, love is patient and love is kind. 
There is here a passive response and an active response to the Christian community. Patience is the passive response, that we are to be long-suffering and forbearing with one another, that this is to govern our interactions and our relationships with each other. So we respond to one another with this long-suffering forbearance, and then we act positively towards one another in kindness. This is Paul's challenge to the Corinthians, that in all their spiritual giftedness, that they weren't patient and they weren't kind. He follows these with seven negatives. And friends, these negatives are all related to the previous 12 chapters. We've seen over the weeks behind us all the problems that were plaguing Corinth. And Paul then applies love to every one of these challenges. And if you were to locate what is the problem behind the problem in Corinth, and you remember the nature of the issues, they were disunified, there was boasting, there was rivalry, there was sexual dysfunction, there was bad theology. Paul hoisted it all right here in the basic fact that they did not know how to walk in love with one another. And so follow with me as we work through these. The first thing Paul says is love does not envy. Now the word envy is a good translation, but this means something like jealously jealously long for something, okay? And we found this in chapter 3, if you turn back in your Bibles with me, to 3 verse 3. Paul says, for you are still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Paul refers here to love not provoking rivalries inspired by jealousy. That is what he is after. That envy was actually dividing up the community and destroying it. As some were envious of the gifts of others or the position of others or something uh, God had done for another or a position another had been placed in. And Paul says this is not the character of love. That it doesn't envy you in this jealous way. And friends, as a community, we always have to be very careful and guarded about envy not being a secret hidden ambition that's riding behind our concerns. And Paul understood that this was a secret sin working inside of the Corinthian congregation. So love does not envy. And then he follows this, that love does not boast. The concern with boasting was a big one in Corinth that the Corinthians loved to boast in their exalted leaders. They were boasting also in their sexual behaviors, their freedom and their license. Paul says that God actually has done something very different. At the end of chapter 1, he says that God has chosen the weak things of the world, that he would destroy all human boasting. And so he points to the hypocrisy of the moment that was happening here in Corinth, that they were boasting and God had destroyed boasting by saying that no man has any room to boast in front of God, that the only way that we're right with God is through the righteousness of Jesus that's freely given to us through his death and resurrection, that this is the only way we're reconciled to God. And so this destroys all boasting. It reduces it to nothing. And so Paul then says, love doesn't boast. And then he will say, love is not arrogant at the end of verse 4. It's interesting here in chapter 5, verse 2, Paul charges the Corinthians with arrogance. 
After he identifies some sexual sin in the congregation, he simply says, and you're arrogant about it. That is just that they were puffed up. They thought more of themselves than they should have. They had deep dysfunctions, and yet they were acting wise. They were hypocrites, is Paul's charge here. And friends, love requires a self-awareness on our part of our weaknesses and our strengths. This is what he's calling the church into, that we're to acknowledge where we're weak, and we're not to be puffed up when we have exposure and when things aren't right in our lives and in our community. He then argues at the beginning of verse 5, he says, love is not rude. If you are familiar with the old KJV, it says love does not behave in an unseemly way. While I typically don't uh, argue that the KJV is the best, old, uh, best translation because of the Old English, it actually is a little bit preferable here. Because when Paul picks up this language of not being rude, he's referring to behaving shamefully. And this word only pops up one other place in the letter, and it's in chapter 7, verse 36, where it is speaking to the man who's acting shamefully towards his betrothed. And what Paul was referencing there is they were getting things out of order and that the marriage bed was happening before the marriage itself. And so the man was acting shamefully. He was going ahead of what he should have done. Paul goes on in chapter 11 to speak also of women uncovering their heads in worship, which we saw several weeks ago was like someone taking off their wedding ring and saying they were available. And in the back half of chapter 11, where the rich were going ahead of the poor in the Lord's Supper, these were all shameful actions where people were taking advantage of others and abusing them and doing things that were not appropriate. And so Paul says, love does not behave shamefully. And then as he continues in verse 5, he says, love does not insist on its own way. That is to say that love is not self-seeking. If you turn to chapter 10 and verse 24, Paul says, Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And if you remember the controversy that the Corinthians thought they were free to simply do whatever they wanted to do, that they were free in Christ, and Paul says, No, you must consider the good of those around you in everything that you do. That all things are lawful, but not everything is beneficial. And so we're to be careful and act in concern for one another. As verse 5 rolls on, he says, love is not irritable. This just simply means that it's not easily provoked to anger. And he says, love is not resentful. That is just that love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Love knows how to entrust judgment to God, and love knows how to forgive. He moves further into chapter 6, I mean into verse 6, where he says, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but love rejoices in the truth. And then the culminating verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. It's a beautiful litany with rhetorical power. You certainly heard it read at weddings. And many people would say, well, that just means that Christians are supposed to be indiscriminate and foolish. They're to be credulous and gullible. But rather what it means is there is to be no limit to our love. 
There is to be no limit to our faith. There is to be no limit to our hope. There is to be no limit to our endurance. That the Christian community, with all of its faults and all of its struggles and all of its weaknesses, is to be bound together in this love where there's no limit to our enduring with one another. Now, as we work through the beauty, the soaring majesty of this passage, there is a reason that it is read at weddings, Christian and secular. It has a certain rhetorical power that's difficult to match. But one of the issues that comes with reading the passage is it also can inspire a certain idealism that can be extremely destructive inside of the local church. And it's the habit of Christian idealists to read this passage, to note Paul's emphasis on love, and then to turn and look at the community around them and enter into judgment. They say, well, since I haven't seen it or experienced it, love in this exalted way of Paul's description, they then pass judgment on the community and tend to then turn to another community where in a few short years, the same judgment will be exercised. There are two rather bitter and striking pieces to, of irony inside of this habit. The first is Paul says that love is patient and kind, that it's not resentful, and that it forbears. You see, the Apostle Paul is the pastor of this Corinthian church. He didn't simply slam them. He didn't find them just wanting in the category of love. Was it the defining problem? Yes. But he simply didn't say, well, I'm just going to leave and start over because love is not defining the community in the way that God wants it to. But rather, he works with the community and he walks with them. That he knows that the church is always partial as it awaits the return of its Lord. And that's what he says at the end of the passage that we see in a, mem in a mirror dimly, that everything is not as it will be. And so Paul enters into that relative situation where things are not as they will be one day. And he enters into the fray and he engages the Corinthians in love, forbearing with them. And friends, when we find the Christian community isn't what it should be, we don't enter into judgment with it. But in love, we move towards it. And we embody that sacrificial love ourselves. Because the pastoral goal is what Paul says in Ephesians 5. He says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ loved us. And friends, this is the key to love being established at the heart of the Christian church. It's not simply that we decide that horizontally we're going to become loving one day. But rather, it is that vertically we must experience the great love of God that passes all knowledge, that goes past all of our understanding. And in that vertical encounter with God, we then begin to move horizontally. And this is the pastoral method, not casting judgment and finding people wanting, but rather preaching the gospel, being melted by the love of God ourselves, turning to our neighbor, wooing people around us into that vision of what it means to live a good and selfless life. The second piece of irony to this is that Paul speaks these words about love as the goal, not as a description of what is happening here in Corinth. 
Remember, he's correcting the Corinthian church, but he's not giving up on the Corinthian church. It's a church that is failing in all kinds of categories and preeminently in this area of love. And Paul isn't looking to the church to be perfect. Paul knows that the church needs to be saved by Jesus. He isn't looking at it to be ideal. And in this regard, it's important for us to remember the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer when he writes in Life Together. Listen carefully to what he says. He said, He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the community, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. Do you hear what Paul says, what Bonhoeffer says? The one who loves an ideal of a community and has decided what that community is to look like and then enters into the reality of Christian community, which is always deficient and is always broken and always stumbling and always weak. Paul says the one who then begins to judge, or Bonhoeffer says the one who begins to judge the Christian community based on their ideal is the one who destroys community. And so, friends, we come realistically, knowing that love is the goal, that that is the sanctifying work of God, and knowing that we see in a mirror dimly, that we live in this partial and fractured situation. And so love is the goal, let's pursue it, and don't allow our ideals, our dreams, to corrupt and break apart the Christian community. And this leads us to Paul's final point, because we have to answer the question, once we, once we have a definition of what love is, that love is patient and kind, and, and love ceases to do these other things, why is love exactly given such prominence inside of Paul's ethics? Why does he think this is the prominent thing in the Christian life? Consider what he says at the end of chapter 12, I will show you a more excellent way. And then at the end of chapter 13, he says, faith, hope, and love, these three abide, but the greatest of these is love. He did think love was supposed to be woven into every action, every attitude of the church. And Paul here in verse 8 of chapter 13, as he works through the final verses here, he says that love never ends. This is why he believes that love is preeminent. See, for all the other spiritual gifts, tongues and prophecy, all the spiritual manifestations that the Corinthians boasted in and found themselves excited about, he says those are all going to cease. Those all exist to serve the church in the current age. But you see, there is a fulfillment where the partiality will end is what he is arguing where the church will be brought to its consummation and finalization when Christ returns. And when he says the perfect comes, this is what he means. When the perfect comes is the return of Christ to rule over the earth with his people and to raise all who have followed him from the dead and to restore all things and renew all things. And what we see here is that Paul argues that love is primary because it alone will endure into eternity. Everything else will cease. Everything else is partial. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. 
I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, as I have been fully known. Paul recognizes that love is the one thing that passes through into eternity. That that is the way of the kingdom of God. It is the way of of the world that is to come. And so it alone endures. It is preeminent. It is the crown jewel of the Christian life. And so, friends, God invites us into a different way, understanding our lives from a different frame of reference, that love is the way of God's new world. And He invites us and He commands us to join Him, that we set aside our selfish interest, that we set aside our preoccupations, that we set aside our bitterness, that we set aside our rivalries, that we set aside our impatience, that we set aside our lack of kindness. And we set those things aside through the love of God revealed in Jesus. And as we experience that great love, and as we acknowledge our own personal sins, our own failings, and we know that we're not deserving, and that the grace of God surrounds us and upholds us, that there's a depth to that love that we can never comprehend and we'll never get our hands around, it's then that we move out into a life of love for other people. Friends, this is the key. These verses will crush you if you don't know the great love of God for you. You can't do it. You'll never inhabit it. You'll find yourself deficient in every way possible. But know God's love for you and then enter into and walk and stumble along the way of love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the beauty of all that you have revealed in a soaring passage like this that calls us to love. May we know your great love and move into the love that you command of us, and will we know what it is to walk in selfless ways, giving ourselves to each other, not promoting ourselves, not exalting ourselves, but serving one another. And would we find the fruit of love welling up within us, emerging in the life of our church, being a testimony to the life of Jesus in the world. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.